0: The Anesthesia Podcast.
1: Oh, good afternoon and good evening to everyone out there in the tritosphere. Uh, my name is Ross Hoffmeyer and I'm an associate editor of the journal Anesthesia. Uh, and I'm coming to you live from Cape Town in South Africa uh, and I'm joined by a crew from Bristol in the United Kingdom whose paper on awake tracheal intubation and aerosol generation has gone live in the journal today uh, and is available open access uh, in Anesthesia. So if you follow the link across the journal's page, you'll be able to access this article in PDF uh, and and follow along. Uh, And I'm really quite excited to be able to discuss this really interesting work with a group of the authors. Uh, I'm joined today by Andy Shrimpton, by Jules Brown, and by Jenna Farrell. uh, And they've done this, this really exciting work. Now. I specifically asked if I could get involved in discussing this paper because I was very involved with our own COVID response here in South Africa, both in my own institution and and across the country, which of course the COVID pandemic being a great spark for us all to get very, very excited about aerosols. And I think uh, many people became armchair experts in uh, aerosol generation, personal protective equipment, so-called aerosol generating procedures and other things uh, overnight. Uh, This generated many, many discussions, many debates. Uh, In fact, after one online uh, um, Zoom meeting here in South Africa discussing aerosols, I was sent a copy of our uh, expert in IPC's book with a signed note from her saying, perhaps you should read this before our next discussion. Uh, So a lot of backwards and forwards about what generates aerosols, how COVID. Uh, can be transmitted, uh, and particularly for us in anesthesia, but also very importantly for our colleagues in other disciplines such as ENT, pulmonology, thoracics, et cetera, the concepts of what procedures are putting us at greater risk. Certainly, we started in the COVID pandemic with a, a, a surfeit of opinion based on fairly thin evidence stemming from the, the first SARS CoV 1 uh, pandemic. Uh, and uh, a lot of opinion formed from that a lot of protocols formed from that we definitely got some things right and we definitely got some things wrong so i'm very pleased to have the, the group from bristol uh, who are here whose whose team has been really steadfast in continuing to do studies looking at aerosol generation looking at these procedures and really doing the hard work science behind them uh, in informing our current practice but very importantly informing our uh, future practice. So I'd like to kick off just by getting the group to introduce themselves briefly. Uh, Perhaps we can start with uh, you, Jen, and then go to Jules and to Andy.
2: Um, Hi there, Ross. Thanks for the introduction. My name's uh, Jen O'Farrell. as you said. Um, I am an advanced airway trainee um, working at University Hospitals Bristol, um, and my involvement predominantly in the study was from the... um, from the actual weight tracheal intubation side, I was less involved in the actual aerosol collecting, and I was, um, you know, sorting up participants and putting them through there for um, teaching the procedure, essentially.
3: Right. And uh, I'm Jules Brown. I'm a consultant anaesthetist at Southmead Hospital in Britain. And uh, along with Andy, I've been involved in our aerosol work really from the start with our original... Uh, uh, anesthetized intubated uh, intubation study um i'm definitely not a, a, an aerosol expert um, but i would say that i'm i'm sort of involved as a, a an anaesthetist with with a sort of um a clinical input to this
0: I don't know. Yeah, again, thank, thanks for the introduction. I'm Andy Shrimpton. I'm an anaesthetic registrar, and I'm undertaking a PhD uh, looking at aerosol generation from medical procedures, and that's where the majority of these studies now have been able to be kind of um, driven forward by, because I've been given this, this time and the funding to undertake these studies, and we've got a, a really good team in Bristol where we're kind of looking at all these different procedures and trying to kind of put some science behind kind of the, the thinking that certainly the start with the pandemic that you mentioned already, where there wasn't much evidence. Fantastic, thanks,
1: guys. So I think to kick off, you know, Andy, you're the lead author on this on this paper, uh, and I, I'm very keen to know uh, what's the story, where did this come from,
0: and how does this fit into the other work that that you mentioned? Um, so, as Jules said, you know, we we started this at the very start of the pandemic, where as a kind of anaesthetist and intensive care doctors, we were massively impacted by the AGP and kind of, you know, the, this is the highest risk procedure in the hospital. And we managed to kind of collaborate with the Bristol Aerosol Research Centre, who were kind of experts in aerosol science. And we managed to look at tracheal intubation and extubation in that first paper back in 2020. And we found that it didn't generate aerosol in the way that it was presumed. And what we did notice, though, is that the coughing, and breathing and speaking did, and so when we looked at other different um, interventions in anaesthetised patients, we kind of you know we kept getting the same answer: it's the patient that generates the aerosol. And then when you look at procedures such as awake tracheostomy, or we also looked at um, upper airway endoscopy, and we found that during that procedure in in awake or patients who had midazolam sedation, certain certain kind of patients would generate. Big volumes of aerosol, bigger than when they were just breathing or coughing beforehand. And we thought this may translate to procedures that, as, as, you know, as airway kind of operators, um, would also kind of be exposed to. And so, as Jen was saying, um, she, she's involved in running the, the course in Bristol where um, essentially training anesthetists come in and they will learn how to perform a weight intubation. And we thought this, this provided a, a, a perfect model to be able to kind of measure aerosol generation from. An awake technique in patients who are kind of conscious, but also with the being anaesthetists, we've got a really very informed consent process as well. So that's kind of where it born from. Okay, fantastic. So
1: to clarify then for the listeners, you may not have had a chance to read the paper. Uh, you took uh, anesthesia trainees who are undertaking an awake intubation workshop, performing awake intubations on each other uh, under under topical anesthesia only. I believe they received nebulized uh, lidocaine and, and then some spray as you go. Uh, and these individuals were uh, scoped nasally and then through the vocal cords down into the trachea, uh, intubated with a size six endotracheal tube. And then you measure particulate counts, uh, both using a, a funnel sampling device um, externally while you're performing the intubations. And then you also measure particulate counts uh, through the circuit connected to the endotracheal tube uh, in the trachea, and then in some of the participants you were able to do that with the tube withdrawn to above the vocal cords.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we, we looked at the kind of procedure um, as a whole in terms of kind of start to finish. You know, before. we couldn't measure during the nebulization or the airway topicalization because that generates so much aerosol from the nebulised, um we came, we did that in a separate anaesthetic room, but then from the very start of putting that um, Uh, nasendoscope in to the point of removing the nasendoscope and the tube into the cords. That was a continual measurement, measuring kind of time, and then after that, we we knew we were had like a very uh, unique kind of set of circumstances where we had um, an awake intubated participant that we could then look at measuring aerosol below their vocal cords um, and so that's part of what as well and jules think got something to add.
3: yeah i just wanted to add that we did this in a in an operating theater with uh ultra clean ventilation system so our, our background counts were extremely low and uh and we feel that that's an essential part of doing any of this work
1: Okay, I think that's a very good point. And, and uh, you also raised the point that, that the nebulization initially to topicalise the airway was done in a separate induction room before people were, were brought in. Uh, Janet, do you have a standard protocol for airway topicalization? I know this is a frequently asked question, probably relevant to the study as well.
2: Um, We do have a standard protocol within our trust, which is more of a suggestion, and then people can follow their own um, sort of nuances. Um, We tend to use now a much more pared down protocol akin to that published in the DAS, Awake Tracheal Intubation Guidelines. We use um, glycopyrrolate as a standard, as was used in our subjects, Um, and then we will Nebulize um lidocaine. Um, most people tend to do that. And then as I said, it will be a 10% spray as you go to the sort of upper airway and pharynx. Um, and then some people may do some further sprays you go with an epidural catheter and 4% lidocaine as they progress. And that it tends to be a much more pared-down technique than perhaps um, it was previously.
1: Okay, great. And um, so I noticed that in the paper particularly when spraying lidocaine on the vocal cords. This, this was one of the procedures which seemed to generate the most uh, particles, the most aerosol. Uh, do we perhaps want to comment on, on why you think that is? I mean, are we just picking, picking up uh, exhaled uh, spray as you go here or, or do we think that this is actually generating, um, prompting the patient to generate
0: more aerosols? I think, well, I think in terms of when you're spraying someone's vocal cords, you want like often you know there's a desire for them to cough because it actually it aerosolizes kind of the, the lidocaine in the air where, where you want it to to work. There's also that protective mechanism, isn't it? That stuff goes on the cords and the natural uh, protective mechanisms. You cough and it's just generating much bigger cough. I mean, what they're coughing out, some of it will be lidocaine, but similarly wise, if if there is a pathogen in their respiratory tract that is, uh, you know able to be kind of aerosolized, then the chance of that happening with that is, is likely to be much, much higher.
1: Okay, so we're we reckoning that everything that generates a cough it uh, is potentially generating aerosols. Well, we're measuring it's generating aerosols. Whether or not that is infectious particles or, or not, we don't. That remains a, a, a known unknown.
0: Now, yeah, so, uh, sorry, 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 just, yeah, so everything we've done here has just been measuring aerosols. And so we have to extrapolate to kind of infection. And so that's something that we, we, we haven't made that link of yet, but certainly we are measuring kind of aerosols from, from the respiratory tract.
1: Yes. And uh, I did notice as well, looking at some of the graphs in the paper, uh, that you also did measure aerosol generation during volitional coughing, uh, and, and that that actually generated a lot less than while spraying a uh, lidocaine on the cords. Do you have a, a theory for why that is?
3: So I think part of it is the fact that when you stimulate a cough, you tend to get a very, very rigorous cough. And when you ask a participant to cough, they don't always cough perhaps as hard as they could. So I think a large part of it is the fact that the stimulated cough is is a very large cough. But then obviously, when you put lignocaine on the cords, as Andy alluded to, then you will get a spray of that in addition. But it's probably the more vigorous coughing that's the, the key here.
1: Anesthesia trainees in Bristol are uh, are delicate <coughs> when asked <laughs> to cough, uh, but can't hold themselves back when spraying <laughs> lidocaine in their cords. That, that does sound familiar. Um, now, uh, what does occur to me is, you know, I, I practice the same, very similar to you, in using nebulized uh, lidocaine as my, my main approach to, um, you know, to doing topicalization for awake intubation. Uh, and, and generally, we have very good results with that obviously also spraying on the cords as as approaching to confirm that there is good topicalisation that usually does generate uh, a cough or two Uh, but there is an argument that people make uh, to use to use airway blocks Uh, and i wondered whether as we've been speaking uh, whether airway blocks are something which is used uh, with any kind of frequency uh, in bristol uh, and and whether or not that might reduce the, the incidence of coughing during the procedure
2: Uh, So in my experience, airway blocks are not actually used that frequently uh, in our region. Um, I suspect for a combination of factors, I think predominantly that people are quite comfortable with their known technique of um, uh, awake fiber optic um, topicalization. And I think Probably as studies have shown over time, trainees' exposure to awake fiber optic is actually reducing because we're doing it less and less as video langoscopy and other techniques become more um, available. So I think, well, certainly for us in our region, it's not something that is used that much. But as you say, it's something that definitely we might consider in these sorts of patients as it is likely to help reduce coughs um, without directly spraying the cords.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder, because it may well reduce stimulation from the upper airway, but certainly the lower, um, you know, the, the yeah. sub-vocal uh, cords area, as well as the trachea, is, is innervated by the recurrent laryngeal, which you can, of course, block, but doing bilateral blocks yeah. of the recurrent yeah. laryngeal is not generally advised. Yeah, um, yeah so it, it, as we're speaking, I think it would be quite interesting to know if anyone is, has looked at um, reducing coughing and perhaps sneezing uh, during the nasal introduction of a, of a scope or a tube. Uh, and then, to be clear, you guys are using very much the DAS approach of uh, inserting the scope with the tube preloaded rather than pr- trying to put a tube in and then scope through it, uh, which yes, I, I know yes, some yeah. people here still advocate, but has never been one of my favourite approaches either. Uh, so, just to come back to uh, the some of the things that come out of the study, so I think you know you've made the point very well that patients generate aerosols and that you know when they breathe, when they cough, when they breathe, they breathe deeply. Uh, certainly, spraying lidocaine on the cords, lidocaine on the cords, uh, and generates quite significant coughing. Uh, were Were there other stimuli that you found in the study that that caused a lot of
0: or oh, generated a lot of uh, aerosol? Yeah, and so I guess I'll come back to just the the point you discussed beforehand in terms of the airway blocks. And that it may reduce the coughing, but it's not going to stop them breathing. And when patients breathe, they generate aerosol. And so I guess this then comes back to the the fact that for all this, the procedure is not really the risk. Because if the patient hasn't got a transmissible infection, then it doesn't matter what you do to them because you're not going to get that infection. But if they've got an infection such as COVID-19, if you're in that close proximity, putting an endoscope into them, even if they don't cough, they're going to be breathing. They're going to be breathing potentially deeper than normal as well, certainly from what we've seen in our studies. Patients generate more aerosol during an endoscope being in their airway compared to just breathing at rest. And that will carry aerosol, albeit at a much lower, lower concentration. And so. It's it's more the kind of the, the patient itself that is the risk rather than the procedure. And that's what we kind of all ourselves is kind of pointing towards that it, it, it's it's you know there it should be a risk, kind of a, um a risk assessment for any interaction with any patients to kind of what the likelihood is, it, is of them having an infection, um, how long you've been with them, what proximity you are to them. And then the procedure itself is probably towards the bottom of, of that.
1: So, you know, it's fine to keep on talking about AGPs, but perhaps we should shift our thinking from aerosol-generating to
0: aerosol-generating patients. Yeah, and we said that from very early on, you know, that's the one thing that the World Health Organization with the AGP construct has kind of not quite addressed because in other documents, they know that coughing and, um, and, you know, aerosolized kind of things do generate aerosol. um, And yet from the AGP construct, it's just... Absent. So there's no risk as to, as to kind of how an AGP is supposed to relate compared to a cough, and so yeah, I think we, we certainly, as an aer- an aerator group, we felt that like this has been an area that needs, you know, relooking at. Yeah, and,
1: and and this would apply equally to anybody who is doing flexible endoscopy of the upper airway, or upper and lower yeah. airway, in fact
3: yes and and we we're, we're definitely conscious of the fact that uh obviously ENT surgeons will be doing this uh, as part of their routine sort of uh potentially in an outpatient setting and it is likely that the the risk or that the the coughs that are generated during our study potentially may occur during nasendoscopy, endoscopy. And so they may need to make a calculation based on how risky the patient is and and, and the like. So it probably does apply to ENT and potentially to respiratory clinics as well. Yes.
1: Now, one of the things that was often or initially suggested to us uh, when COVID came around and we were intubating COVID patients was, uh, or doing procedures, in fact, was why don't we use our, our laminar flow theaters where we've got the, you know this curtain of descending air uh, and that, that can that can protect us uh, and that in in our setting was was shelved because we were worried about the, the huge flow of air out of the operating theatre as being a potential potential risk. Uh, but what are your thoughts on on using a laminar flow setting to protect practitioners?
3: So our, our feeling is that if you get close enough to, to the patient to do a fibre optic intubation, and they cough, that the velocity that of, of the cough is way, way in excess of the flow during laminar flow. So the the flow in the theatre probably doesn't protect you significantly if they cough in your direction and you're close to them.
1: All right, that's, it's a direct proximity issue. Now, I allude back to something that Andy said, and that was, you know, make a risk assessment of the patient and, and if you think the patient is a risk. Uh, and, and I'm sure that there are other people out there who work in environments that, that may be similar to my practice setting where we have a, a local um, endemic um, epidemic of tuberculosis, uh, which obviously is aerosol transmission. Uh, and you know, I, I come back to thinking of uh, any patient who comes into our operating theatres, but certainly the you know the unknown trauma patient uh, with all mix of the facial fractures that arrives in Christmas in your emergency department and uh, you know has just been brought in. Uh, where where do we sit with? Should we be advising the use of a uh, so-called AGPPP or you know at least uh, um, high efficiency uh, filtering facepiece masks etc. Uh, for all of these procedures? Uh, can we can we safely screen or exclude? conditions and
0: patients, or you know, should this become a standard of practice for us? Um, so I, I guess, it, again, it, it comes down to the risk assessment for that patient. So, I mean, what what we've found in, in this study is that, certainly using this technique at any rate, is that patients during this procedure, you're in a very close proximity, they can generate high concentrations of aerosol, you you kind of close to them for quite a long period of time, it's directed towards you. And so if they've got a, an infection that is able to be spread by the airborne routes and you can inhale it, then you're at a higher chance of getting that disease. And so I think that if you are going to perform an awake technique on a patient that you have a higher suspicion, suspicion of index that they have some form of infection that you would be you know susceptible to, then I think wearing um certainly a respiratory protection uh, that would filter out the particles that can be inhaled into the deepest parts of your lungs would seem like a sensible precaution.
1: Right, uh, and now I noticed that all three of, the, of us gentlemen are wearing eyeglasses, but Jen, uh, your eyesight is, is still excellent. <laughs>
2: um, what's, what's I'm your in your denial, point? one of the two.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what's What's your feeling on eye protection uh, while doing these these procedures?
3: So we, we discussed this um, previously, and our, our feeling is that the main, in the main means of transmission is aerosol from the patient's lungs to, to the operator's lungs. And um, if there was a risk, it would be a, a very large droplet landing in the eye. But we feel that that's probably less of a risk than the huge volume of small particles that you're likely to inhale.
1: Right. Uh, so the one thing that I did want to circle back to is uh, is this issue of the use of some kind of uh, analgesia sedation. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously, this is is one of the four tenets of the DAS guidelines uh, that, that you mentioned. Uh, and there are many approaches to, to sedation for the procedure. I, I try and push a message of uh, analgesia, which may have some other beneficial effects, such as using uh, an opiate with an antitussive effect. Do you think that your, your, your findings would differ if you did use some form of, of sedation?
2: And so I suppose in my experience, what we predominantly use would be remifentanil. And as you said, it's, you know, a sort of, um, I would say more smooth. The procedure is analgesic and makes the patient feel more relaxed. But I would say that it's extremely rare that we would ever have it at a level that has actually a true anti property i think um patients, patients still cough um and as we said it's the coughing particularly when you're directly topicalizing the vocal cords that's gen- generating the large amounts of aerosol so i mean i personally don't think it will significantly change um would change the results and um i think as we mentioned um certainly as we think there are definitely other agents that people use, dex-metatomidine, Um, and other things that don't have the same antitussive properties. Um, And so even with sedation, I think the procedure, um, if your patient has an infection, is still putting the operator at risk.
1: Right. And then I suppose the other question which I had or which came to mind is, you know, frequency for me to be performing bronchoscopies as a is. Uh, When we are uh, um, working with patients, for instance, with tracheal pathology, tracheal stenosis, uh, or on the ICU, when we need to do an ICU bronchoscopy, uh, a lavage, go hunt down a mucus plug, um, do you think that often those patients are being ventilated, they may or may not be paralyzed, Um, do you think there's a significant risk from bronchoscopy in a ventilated patient, uh, or even from something as simple as uh, confirming a, a double lumen tube placement with a with a
0: flexible bronchoscope and maybe I can toss that uh, um, to you Andy. I might even hand that across to Jen because myself and Jen have been looking at the double lumen tubes and we've got some data on that and she's been very involved in, in that study as well.
2: Um, so yeah as Andy said we've actually done some work looking at um, double lumen tubes specifically um, the insertion process and then uh, checking with a um, flexible bronchoscope, um, and I don't know if I'm allowed to let the cat out of bag, but essentially that again, in a you know, in an intubated, um, paralysed patient, does not generate aerosol, um, and we have tested that even with uh, just as a sort of worst case scenario with the caps off our, our double lumen tube and ventilator flows on maximum, and again, it's shown like no significant aerosol generation. I think. The patients who have tracheal stenosis or undergoing rigid bronchoscopy are, you know, potentially a, a different group as who knows what the flow in their airway is like with those particular pathologies. And then again, the ICU patients are again a, a different group. They're likely to have pathology, you're um, suctioning and you're lavaging the airway. Um, so again, that that may... Um, generate aerosol differently, but in specifically in a paralysed patient where you're just performing a straightforward bronchoscopy, we have shown that it doesn't generate aerosol. Significant proportions of
3: aerosol. I
1: think I think that's really quite uh, reassuring. Now we have said that. Uh, yeah,
3: sure, go ahead. It was just to say that we have also carried out a percutaneous tracheostomy insertion in a laminar flow theatre, and that it was only a single patient. But again, during the whole process, uh, we didn't measure significant levels of aerosol during the insertion, uh, either at the site of insertion or at the top end with a um, tracheal tube pulled back. So. Uh, it's likely that it's a much, much lower risk than in awake patients having fibre optic intubation.
1: Right. And when you guys are working outside of the operating theatre in areas that might not have you know, as frequent air changes, uh, do you have a protocol after an awake intubation in a, in a potentially infectious
0: patient to allow that area to, to breathe to life fallow? I mean, again, I guess it comes back to the fact that a patient is going to be generating aerosol during breathing and so in some ways once so if you got if you're doing like a tracheal intubation for you know for under general anesthetic essentially once you've anesthetized them, you stop the agp because agp was a patient who was breathing and we don't do a um a follow time for that and so again it's this whole construct of the agp is kind of is 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 wrong essentially but if you've got a patient who's got COVID-19 then we would have a period of kind of deep cleaning and cleaning down afterwards because we know that, that condition not because of the procedure and I think that's that's the way it should be done because the procedure itself is not going to re- generate more aerosol than the patient awake and breathing and coughing before they're going to go off to sleep as it were and so the same thing applies to our weight intubation as well I'd say.
1: I guess my final question then uh, maybe I'll, I'll ask Jen because she's doing it regularly. Uh, you have a patient with, with unknown or indeterminate uh, COVID status who's coming to you who needs an awake intubation for a really solid uh, indication. Uh, what PPE are you going to wear tomorrow?
2: Uh, so I guess that, yeah, it comes down to, I mean, I'm vaccinated, obviously, and then comes down to the patient themselves. If I have any suspicion that they have COVID or COVID contact, um, I mean, we're lucky enough now to have lateral flow testing, which can give you a very quick answer. Um, but in a truly unknown situation or, I, you know, as you know, there's a lot of flu at the round at the moment, equally an aerosol transmission. Um, if there's any suspicion, I think I would be wearing PPE.
1: All right. and, and what is what PP is that in your in your context?
2: Uh, so that is an FFP three um, eye mask or eye protection of some description, and then uh, you know gloves and a gown. Okay, great,
1: um, fantastic. Well, thanks, folks. I think we've just about run out of our time. I, I thought maybe Andy, as a lead author, I can give you one moment to say you know, what what is your your main take or message, or your your couple of points that that you really want this study uh to cement for for the readers
0: out there um, i guess it's the fact that we we've shown again that awake patients uh, generate aerosol during breathing during coughing during speaking um and that the procedure is not the main factor of the risk assessment it's it's everything else around it should be it should be, a, it should be a part of the whole kind of process of, of assessing the patient the risk to yourself from getting the condition the risk that they've got that condition and how long you're there with them um, and the proximity you ask to, to, to that patient as well so it should form a positive risk assessment rather than just being purely focused on the procedure itself fantastic well thank you very much guys it's been a real pleasure to speak to you and
1: again congratulations on this really uh, excellent work and now that we can all travel again hopefully we will be able to meet up uh, sometime I'll have to come and see lovely Bristol thank you very much
2: <laughs> thank you I'd much rather go to South Africa <laughs>
0: let me know when to pick you up from the airport (laughs) the anesthesia podcast